It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. Today, we're talking about meditation, what it is, what you might think it is that it actually isn't, and why you should really give it a shot. So take the next hour, less than an hour, and just be here. You can listen to your breath if you want. You can listen to my breath because I do a lot of talking. In a bit, I'll talk to a doctor and Harvard School of Medicine professor who specializes in mind-body connection. He'll explain the real, genuine medical value of meditation. And first, Laura House, comedian, writer, co-host of Tiny Victories on the Maximum Fun Network, and meditation instructor. You know, I give these talks all over the place about mental health and and people ask me, well, what's your, you know, what do you do to address mental health? What's the right answer, John, about how to how to have good mental health? And I say, well, there's no right answer. Everybody's got a different approach. Some people, a lot of people get a lot out of therapy. Some people are aided by uh, medication. Some people look at their their diet and exercise and figure out the best thing to do. And, and people nod along with me. And then I say, and a lot of people meditate and they get a lot out of that. And then I get this look from people. Really? That, that's You've angered like, them? I haven't angered them. <laughs> I've just made them a little nervous because I think that they think I'm going to get, is the term woo woo a thing in your yeah, world? It really is. It's, um, what I work against when it, it's my, it's the chip. It's I have a woo woo chip on my shoulder. I feel uh-huh. like what I'm determined to, when people talk about meditation, like we're talking about this, Hey John, how are you? That's great. And then, Oh, let's talk about meditation. Okay. Let's talk about meditation. And it's public like, radio voice suddenly okay, says, let's, um, you know what? Just like touch your own soul with your eyeballs. What? I just calm down. Like we're talking about meditation. Yeah. So I like to talk about it with the same, level of verve uh-huh. and rambunctiousness to, with which I might do stand-up. And by woo-woo, we mean uh, people who think that there is a mystical component yep. to all meditation, I should say, to that there is a that it's part of a religious practice. And that may be the case. I'm pretty sure that is the case in some subsets of meditation. But, but sure. maybe we should define what we talk about when we talk about meditation. Yeah, I can. It was it was my biggest fear when I started. So I started meditating, I guess I learned about 15 years ago. I'm 14 years sober. I think that's probably relevant. <laughs> but I had was getting healthier and I was like, I want to learn to meditate. I didn't even, I think like a lot of people, you don't even want to meditate, but you want that thing that you think you're going to get from meditation. Like it would be better to not have to meditate to do it. Um, (laughs) But I think I had two fears when I, when I learned one was, Oh, is this just going to be some other thing I do to feel better that doesn't work and more time and money wasted. Mm -hmm. And my second fear was, is it going to work like too hard? Like, is it going to really work? <laughs> like I was afraid, like, am, am I going to walk pensively on a beach at sunset wearing linen pants? And uh-huh. am, am I going to have, I pictured a Wayne Dyer 
CD cover? Like, am I going <laughs> to, when I talk to you, am I going to call you brother, even though we're not related? And am I right. going to have to touch my heart and your heart to welcome you, your soul into my whatever? And I was just like, I don't want any, any of like, can I just be me, but better? Like, can I just be me without all the anxiety and stress? Can I, can I laugh without it being from too deep of a place about the inner, about the inner joy of the universe itself? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can, can I, I laugh at a regular joke? Yeah, exactly. Can I, can I laugh at, you know, yeah, at skateboarder falling downstairs and it was that a weird <laughs> example, but like, can I laugh at some dumb thing? Like, yeah. And like, am I still going to enjoy airplane the movie or mm -hmm. am I only going to chuckle when I consider that some people think we're not all connected? <laughs> Silly. <laughs> Here's what kept me away from meditation for quite a while. I was interested mm. in it. I had heard that, oh, it could reduce your stress. Uh, yeah. It could kind of put you in the present moment, which sounded really appealing to me because with depression, with anxiety, there, there's a lot of fixation on stewing over the past and fretting over the future. Yeah. And I wanted to just be where I was in the present moment. Like, like I had long ago been an actor, and when acting felt the best, it's when you could be completely present in that moment mm. in a scene with like your, your fellow actor. And so I looked into it, and I went to the wrong place, Laura. I went to some informational session where some people were there and they told me it's it's all about breath. And I'm like, okay, that's good. And you need to control your breath. I'm like, okay, that's good. And some people who have done this have been able to teleport themselves across the globe. Oh, wow. And that was, that was number three. Yeah. Physically <laughs> go from like France to China mm. in the blink of an eye because they were so good at controlling their breath. And I thought, no, they yeah. couldn't. <laughs> and if that's going to be, like, if that's the high point that I'm going to reach, I, I don't want to be that guy. Yeah, that's, I, I sometimes say, like, like, meditation isn't weird or mystical. It was just branded that way. Like, that's, uh -huh. a, we that's a weird thing. You know, you can also say it's a cool little disco nap. You know, uh -huh. you can also say it's it's a tiny three minute vacation that you get to take before you start work. You know, you can, we can call it so many different things that I, I think what happened was, and I, I don't want to get into too many negatives about <laughs> meditation because there's so many positives, but if I make it sound real kind of weird and fantastical and I'm your only way to get there, mm. I can charge you a lot of money <laughs> <laughs> right? Like if I can if I can convince you it's going to take away your pain and you're living on Jupiter whenever you want. Yeah. And you know, then you I think some people went that route and that yeah. kind of got that's what you make movies about or that's what gets publicized so people are like that's the face you get when you say meditation. People are like I don't want to I don't have a red robe or what, you know, right, whatever. Right. I don't want to, I don't want to even have to go up on a mountain, let alone sit cross-legged on one. Yeah. Do I have to have a cow in my backyard? <laughs> what, what, what are you talking about? So then when, when you tell people, oh, I'm a meditation teacher and people get that kind of wrinkled brow that, that I was talking about earlier, what do you tell them? What do you tell them meditation is in your world? Well, 
I've had a different experience for for whatever reason, and I don't know if it's... You've been living in California for a while, so maybe you don't get the wrinkled brow as much. That's fair. Yeah, in in uh, the mid <laughs> the middle part of the country might be yeah. a little different. I'm I'm not typical. I'm nothing like the guy I learned meditation from. He is fully long beard. <laughs> I mean, his name is Tom, but he travels the world and, you know, sits for, he, you know, uses words you never heard. And I'm a, kind of a goofball. So for me, I think I'm kind of, people get like, oh, can I meditate? There might be with me personally, a thing like, well, if you can do it, surely, <laughs> surely I can do it. And you're, you're not a thing that seems, you seem like me. You're not intimidating. I'm not intimidating in that way. So I I get either a, oh, wow, how do you do that? Or a, oh my gosh, I could never, my brain's a mile a minute. I could, like every reason, pe- like as if I'm a like a meditation cop. You know, sometimes people will will just like, oh, I like, please don't make me meditate. I, I'm crazy or whatever. I guess what I tell people is it's it's a technique to relax your mind and let go for a little bit. And when you can relax your mind, your body relaxes and it's, it's good for you. Is it hard? Meditation? Yeah. Is it weird to make you do something right now? Would you be willing to? Sure, I'll do something. Do something I asked you, asked you I, to do? I've already done arts and crafts on video for this show. So oh, nice. meditation <laughs> techniques will be fine. Well, let's not even think of it as just just do this. Just close your okay. eyes. All right. And people listening, follow along. Unless you're driving, don't do that. <laughs> but if it's safe to close your eyes, close your eyes. And then just notice your breath. Not no, no concentrating or controlling. Just it, your breath is happening. It's already there. It's been there all day and yesterday. So just notice it. Now, slowly open your eyes. What was that for you? Did you feel any different, better? Do you feel better now, worse? Yeah, as soon as I felt that that first conscious breath, and I, I should stipulate I've done a little bit of meditation myself away from the mystical and more towards the mindfulness-based stress reduction, John Kabat-Zinn sure, uh, yeah. style. As soon as I felt that first breath, I was... I was like, "Oh yeah, I've I've returned somewhere. I've I've come back somewhere." Then I thought, "I'm glad we're not on radio. I'm glad we're on podcast and not radio because this dead air would be would be dangerous." That's when but- they- <laughs> that's so first, yeah, I, that's perfect. So first a I guess that's something I like to show people is in my experience when I've asked people to do this sort of 10 second Thing. Close your eyes. Just notice your breath. You're not trying to do anything. You're just no- notice. Like who notices their breath? Nobody. Like you, <laughs> you've had it since your first moment mm-hmm. it, with us, and you will have it until your last moment with us. But we don't think about it very much. So we just notice, and it shifts. For one, close our eyes. We're not taking in a lot of information. We're not stressing about things, and and it does make sense. You know, your second thought is somewhat anxious or, oh, it's right. good that we're not, <laughs> I'm not in trouble for this or, you know, that sort of thing. But it's really just that easy. I guess for me, meditation, it's that close. You close mm. your eyes, you notice your breath. You can kind of drift away. It's your own private oasis in here. I'm pointing at my head and chest. We have it inside and you can just sort of 
visit that, I guess, is so I, I teach two kinds of meditation. I teach Vedic meditation, which is similar to transcendental, is which is a formal I took a course, I teach a course, I can teach that, you get a mantra, you don't share it, it's it's private. And I only taught that for a few years. And then people would ask me, they would say like, oh, I'm really stressed out, can I learn to meditate? And I started feeling bad that my answer was yes, just come hear me talk about it and then come for four days <laughs> and right. then exchange you know, something of value and I'll teach it to you. So I learned to teach the mindfulness, the John Kabat-Zinn, like, like for five years I've taught at the wellness at Universal Studios, which makes me laugh because I'm teaching meditation to people who work there and like the Harry Potter roller coaster is, <laughs> is right, right behind me basically. In the room where I taught it would, you could hear the water world stunt show would start up uh, and stuff and I was like this is great like <laughs> you can meditate no matter what even though Voldemort's right outside right yeah everybody from from Harry Potter probably could have benefited from from some meditation oh everybody um <laughs> so yeah so that was a, a long way of saying I like both kinds but I like the simplicity of just notice your breath let go let it be an easy thing and how long does it take, do you find, for, for someone to start getting a benefit from that? Like if somebody had never done anything called meditation before, are they going to realize a benefit within those first 10 seconds of, of noticing your breath? Oh, that's such a good question. I guess that would also be different for everybody. I, I guess I, in a way, I teach meditation, and I guess in a way I think of myself a little bit as a as a motivational speaker about like a, a meditational speaker, if you will, like I, a cheerleader for meditation because an evangelist. Yes. I'm, I'm a bit, um, yeah, a medvangelist. And uh -huh. I, I guess I would say, you know, find the one that works for you. So as far as the benefits go to me, even in that, that little taste that we did of just closing the eyes, notice your breath, there's some benefit to realizing, oh, I can actually just stop and notice something other than my freak out thoughts and I can have a different experience. Oh, this is something I can do. There's benefit in that. What's so great about breath? Like what's so so important about breath? Why Why isn't it like, let's see, move your hand muscles. You know, I'm just thinking of other things that the body does. Uh, oh, what's so yeah. great about, why is breath at the center of it? So when I learned my Vedic technique, there was a mantra and the mantra helps sort of unwind thoughts. It, it can sort of help you get there in a way. It's a mantra means mind vehicle, <laughs> oddly. I guess to me, the breath is something that you don't have to learn it. You already have it. There's I. There's no bad news in the breath, really, is the way I think about it. It's just a little job for your mind. Instead of, like, if you tell your mind, like, hey, just don't do anything for 10 minutes, your mind can't follow. Your mind doesn't stop. So, which is another thing I like to tell people is you're going to have thoughts when you meditate. It's totally normal. It would be weird if you didn't, <laughs> you know, we're not trying to get, and I think perfectionism comes up a lot around meditation. Like, oh, I can't do it. I have thoughts. And it's like, yep, it's part of it. 
it's totally, totally fine. What's the approach that you recommend for, for when you get those thoughts? So like I'm sitting there, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm working with a teacher of some sort and I'm having uh, this uh, consciousness about my breath. I'm, I'm, I'm observing the breath. And then I think, you know, I wonder how high a chicken could fly if it really put its mind to it. Like, I wonder how much altitude a chicken could get to. And then, you know, I, I would think that and then I'd think, oh, I, I, I broke it. You know, I, I screwed yeah. it up. I can't do this. Like, once you have the, the thought that is completely random, what do you do about it? Yeah, it, you just notice your breath when you become aware of that. So the, the process, the way I describe the process of it, well, here's something that's kind of behind it. I think of meditation, it's a detour for your brain. So my brain, without meditation, I'm in a oh shit loop. Like I'm just, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. So if I can detour that, if I can go, oh, you know what? I'm going to close my eyes. I've already detoured it, right? I did something different. Instead of just fist clench, upset, I can't believe this. I'm like, you know what? I have an option. I'm going to exercise it. (laughs) So I close my eyes and then I notice my breath. So I'm giving my mind instead of my, basically my mantra is, oh shit. If I don't (laughs) meditate, but if I can go, oh, like notice the breath or get a mantra. There's all kinds of free mantras in the world. Deepak Chopra gives them out left and right. You know, you can just like, oh, so, um, so, um, aham brahmasmi. There's lots of words. If a word might make more sense to do, but you just give your mind a little tiny little job. Just give it a little job that's other than worrying about your life. Mm. Because that's the mind's job outside of meditation, (laughs) to keep you alive and to keep you happy and to keep you comfortable and make this person still love you every day. You're giving your mind a little arts and crafts project. You're giving it a little hobby. You kind of are, yeah. So so you, you give yourself the time to do that. You put aside your two, your three, your four minutes a day or five or whatever you can do. So you're giving yourself the time. And then when you meditate, you're just, this is the process. It's deceptively simple is you just close your eyes, get comfortable. I'm a, I don't think you have to sit upright or hold a certain posture. You just get comfortable, close your eyes, notice your breath or say your little word. Or I, even in, I don't know. I don't quote this often, but even in Eat, Pray, Love, there was the a visual of if you just took some quiet time and pictured a little smile on your heart, you would feel better. So it's going to be different for different people, but you give your mind that little job. Thoughts come in. You can follow those thoughts. You're not fighting thoughts. You're not resisting thoughts. You're just like, oh, chickens, I don't know, four or five feet probably. Oh, I'm thinking about chickens. Breath breath or mantra or whatever, <laughs> smile on my heart, whatever I'm thinking about. And thoughts are going to come again. It's not like surfing, like how long can I stay on the wave? <laughs> you know, how right, long can I right. stay out of thoughts? It's it's just, it's that's the process is this drifty thing. And in my experience of doing it, but also teaching, you know, do this for five minutes or 10 minutes, even if there's a struggle in the beginning Because, of course, in the beginning, we're thinking about whatever we were thinking about before we started meditating. At the end, when we've kind of, oh, thoughts and gone back to a thing, there's a, it's like if we started stress level eight, 
well, we're down to down to stress level three, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, we've, we've downshifted a little bit. And for me, I, for sure, I'm talking too much. I get, I get so excited. <laughs> it's okay. It's why I'm interviewing you. <laughs> but for me, when I don't even like to think of it as a practice, cause I, I think it signals people that it like, it's hard or you, it's something you ha- you'll be good at one day, therefore you're not good at now. It's just a habit. It's just it's brushing your teeth. You're not any better today at brushing your teeth than you were when you started. Maybe a little better, but very very incremental. <laughs> so it's really just three minutes every day. I'm just kind of in this calm, drifty place where I'm not freaking out. My brain will start to choose that outside mm-hmm. of meditation. That's the real benefit. You change the neural pathways in our neuroplasticity of our brain. But if I only ever give it the choice of upset and oh shit, that's all I'll ever get. So to me, meditation is introducing a new option that my brain can exercise. You do a lot of teaching. You've worked with a lot of people. You you do meditation teaching in comedy clubs and universal <laughs> I studios. Did, yeah, I did it on my album Mouth Punch. Yeah, you well, and you've you've helped a lot of people. And surely many of those people must have been dealing with depression, anxiety, stress. What has been your experiences with people who who have come into that with those particular issues that they've been handling? Like what, what are the benefits that they've received? What are the challenges, the unique challenges that they've faced in that kind of situation? Well, I would say I come into meditation with those things, I guess is, is one way that I relate to it. I've been diagnosed with depression a few times and put on medication and I have anxiety. I think in a way, the longer I'm sober, I, I, <laughs> I notice anxiety more, to be honest. And I think of mental health in in these ways as well. I guess I would say I would never make myself responsible for someone's complete healing picture. You know, someone can have a therapist and maybe they need uh, meds to address a chemical depression and meditation can still help. It's a buffet. It's it really the it's the mental health buffet. That'll be the next podcast. Coming up, how could your life be different after meditating? One possibility, not beating yourself up all the time. Or at least not as much. Back now with comedian, writer, podcast, co-host of Tiny Victories, and meditation instructor, Laura House. What do people other than yourself who have dealt with depression and anxiety tell you about meditation after they've been in it for a while? Well, I'll give one specific example. I don't know if this is... I, I don't know that the answer is ever... I would want the answer to be, well, I was depressed and now I am not ever depressed again. I don't know that that is necessarily the answer. It's more of this helps. This is a great tool for me. I feel less down, that sort of thing. But I have had very specific instances where I taught someone to meditate 
And they were like, oh, okay. Like, they weren't freaking out about it or anything. And then they they told me that, like, a couple weeks after they learned to meditate, their car got towed. And they had been on a – they had been out and they were – Parked in, you know, L.A., every other street is you can't park on at a certain time. So they were parked in the don't park there, but they were really tired. So they went in, took a nap, ended up sleeping through the night and woke up. I think my car might have gotten towed and were towed. And she said she had this kind of airy vibe when she said it. But she said, I just thought, oh, I guess my car was towed. And I looked at the number and I called work and said I might be a little late. And then I took a cab over before Uber and got my car and wrote a check. And I was, you know, maybe 10 minutes late to work. It was fine. But that she just had the experience without the freak out of the experience or the story of the experience, which I think the story, and I struggle with this personally a lot, this, the shame, oh, I'm so stupid. Why did I do that? Oh, and that, that yelly critical voice I call the how to hate yourself voice, you know, that's that's in the head. Meditation, it's you're building up this muscle of this other thing. This it's not even necessarily a voice, but a calm, an ease. When you think about when you go on vacation, right? Like you've paid however much money to be in Hawaii for five days, right? You're gonna have a good time. Right. You paid this money. You got on the plane. You packed the bags. You got the kids. You whatever. And when you get bad news on vacation, you ignore it. Right. You go, well, that's going to have to wait till Monday. I'm on vacation. That's you can apply that to meditation. You can put a, a boundary, you know, put a fence around those five minutes. This is my time. And when thoughts come in, it's not like we say, Nope, we're just like, nope, no bad news right now. My calls are on hold. And we're we're getting this experience of, I'll just say ease. It doesn't even have to be happiness or ecstasy or something big. Just ease and calm and things are okay. I'm just noticing my breath. I'm just, my world is not big right now. My world is between me and myself. I'm just right here. Everything's fine. When you do that as a habit, again, that's, that builds up like a counter to that how to hate yourself voice or that oh shit mantra. When I had a meditation class I was taking, I would come home from it and my wife would say, well, how was your class? And my joke was always, oh, I, I won. I got first place. <laughs> because it, it occurred to me that so many things that we pursue, we're trying to either be the best at them or complete them. Like there's almost a uh, quantitative measurement that we're looking for. Yeah. You know, like I, I finished all these levels on this on this meditation oh, yeah, exactly. video game. Yeah. And is that one of the hardest things for people to really get is that you don't have to be the best at this. You don't have to win. You don't have to reach the highest level. That It's just a matter of being. Yeah, that the win is to do it. You know, like like it's another, if we can sort of reset the bar to, oh, did you meditate? Again, like brushing your teeth. Like you don't, very rarely do you brush your teeth and then you're like, nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> High <laughs> five, everyone. Got the ones in the back. <laughs> what? Like, you, but you just do it. And if you don't, like, if you do it as a habit, say, 
do it for three weeks or four weeks as a habit, then don't do it. You might feel a little funny. So you might not necessarily feel like, oh, I did meditation. I feel incredible. But it it kind of raises your level of feeling good. Well, similar to, to talk therapy, too, I think. If you... If you go in there saying, all right, how long is this going to take to yeah. get my issues with my mother worked out? You know, like, what is it, again, three weeks, four weeks? What, what's the deal? Yeah. It's not going to pay off. But if you if you go in there as part of a routine, you know, whether that involves regular appointments or not, but a routine of that self-examination and that looking for, for clues, then I think it's a much better approach. Yeah, I think so. And in a similar way, it's maybe like letting a little air out of the tires, yeah. right? You're just like, oh, I just, I kind of needed this relief and this release. And so, yeah, in a way, when people meditate, this might sound weird, but, I, you know, I, I don't know exactly what they're going to get. But I do know from experience and from personal experience and seeing people, it's nothing bad. You know, nobody is like, oh, I can't do math anymore. <laughs> you know, like you, it's only, you only get a new kind of calm or ease with yourself. That was the thing before I meditated, I could never even, I couldn't sit still. I couldn't be with myself. I couldn't, I just had to be out doing stuff all the time. And I was very, I guess you would say like extrinsically focused. And then meditation, it, the the idea that I'm a meditation teacher, you just met me so you you would not have this perspective. It's completely bizarre that I, I am not, I mean, I am from a small town in Texas where all this is stupid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I am, you know, it was not something I talked to my dad about. He was like, mantra, I, I don't know about that. Like, I'm like, just, I'm a silly goof. I'm a, you know, I'm, I just am a comedian. I just want to be funny. So the idea that I not only can meditate, but I, Teach, I teach comedians also a lot to meditate, which is also funny. But I, that's how much it gave me that it was like, oh, I can just be, I can sit with myself. I, you know, I don't need constant validation right now. I can take a break from that. It's that, it's, it's a gift in so many small but profound ways. Before we go, one quick rundown of things meditation is not. Here are things that I think it's not, and you confirm it for me. You don't need to wear a flowing robe. No. Okay. Could be fun. Could be fun. The <laughs> word om is uh, optional to rare. Yeah, not necessary. Okay. You don't need to sit in uh, that position where your legs are folded on top of your other legs, and then your legs hurt. Your legs do not need to be akimbo. Okay. <laughs> you probably won't reach total enlightenment, at least right away, but you can have a good time anyway and benefit from it. Yeah, you don't need it. Okay. You don't need it. Enlightenment's for jerks. Ah, there you go. Screw you, <laughs> enlightenment. <laughs> Laura House, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for talking to me. Do we say namaste? I don't usually, but... We can. No, I don't want to. We can, yeah, fair. No, screw it. <laughs> That's Laura House. Check out laurahouse.com for more about her meditation work and her other work. Laura is delightful. Just ahead, it sounds like meditation can be helpful, but 
Why and how? What's it actually doing up there in your head and in your body? Get in the car because we're all going to see a psychiatrist. If you're sick of constantly arguing with the people closest to you about topics that really aren't going to change the world, we're here to take that stress off of your shoulders. We take care of it for you on We Got This with Mark and Hal. That's right, Hal. If you have a subjective question that you want answered objectively once and for all time for all of the people of the world, questions like, who's the best Disney villain, Mac or PC, or should you put ketchup on a hot dog? That's why we're here. Yes, I get that these are the biggest questions of our time. And we're often joined by special guests like Nathan Fillion, Orlando Jones, and Paget Brewster. So let Mark and Hal take care of it for you on We Got This with Mark and Hal, weekly on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Annabelle Gerwich. And I'm Laura House. And we're the hosts of Tiny Victories. My tiny victory is that I sewed that button back on the day after it broke. We talk about that little thing that you did that's a big deal to you, but nobody else cares. Did you get that Guggenheim Genius Award? We don't want to hear from you. We want little bitty tiny victories. My tiny victory is a tattoo that I added onto this past weekend. Let's talk about it. My victory is that I'm one year cancer free, but my tiny victory is that I took all of the cushions off the couch, pounded them out, put them back, and it looks so great. So if you're like us and you want to celebrate the tiny achievements of ordinary people, listen to Tiny Victories. It's on every Monday on Maximum Fun. Dr. Darshan Mehta is medical director of the Benson Henry Institute for Mind-Body Medicine in Boston. He's also an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. So I think it's exciting time. I mean, I would say at least on the scientific side, it's a very, very exciting time to understand who responds to what and which type of meditation is better for which individual. You mentioned the term uh, mind-body practice. Is mm-hmm. that a more <laughs> a more scientific term for meditation? What does that term mean? No, no, I think mind-body practice is a more overarching term. When we think of meditation, many people have in their mind an image of a, somebody just sitting in sort of stationary or, or some sort of posture. But it turns out that meditation can be, you know, when we look at practices like yoga and tai chi, they're moving meditation practices. So, so mind-body practices where mind-body medicine, as we, you know, we think of this, actually, there is a treatment effect. So we are really thinking of in the, in the context of like, this is supporting their overall management and health of their condition. At least in a, when I speak as a physician, I'm thinking of like what, how this can help support someone's overall treatment. So there's sort of a prevention piece, a treatment piece, an intervention piece as well. So, so I think that it's sort of a more encompassing, all-encompassing term. We talk about a variety of mental health situations, disorders, obstacles, whatever whatever term you might want to use on this show. And the link with something like anxiety or depression seems to make a lot of sense. Are there some common widespread disorders that it doesn't really help with, that it's not meant to address? So the way I often will frame it with any, if I'm working with a patient, is do you have a condition or do you have a symptom that you know or you feel that is exacerbated or worsened when you are feeling more stressed? 
So commonly, I mean, I'll tell you what we most commonly see in our clinic is people complain of fatigue. That's probably our most common symptom. And our next most common is sleep issues. Those are their top two that we see. And then some sort of chronic pain like headaches, back pain, abdominal pain. So those are the sort of the most, if I had to say the lump 90% of my patients are going to fall into that classification. So we try not to, at least in our clinic practice, not to over promise. We are quite confident that when patients learn these practices, they are able to reduce the contributory effect or how stress is contributing to the progression of their symptoms or manifestation of their symptoms, and that they will notice a difference. Now, if someone's experiencing a pain at the level of eight, do we think it's going to go down to zero? No, probably not, to quite be quite honest, because it's multifactorial. But it is reasonable for us to say that they will go from an eight to a six. And then that sense of empowerment that they own that 25% benefit, that's all of them. There's nothing, there's no medication attached to that. It is really based on their own individual engagement in these practices. We live in a society, I mean, if we think about the pandemic over the past 18 months, and we think about just the underlying sort of social fabric we're in, it's a challenging time. And most people are suffering. This really, I think, brought to bear some, especially around mental health, like when we actually are forced to isolate ourselves, what damage that does. We are seeing now the rate of deaths associated with opioid use disorder has dramatically increased. And is that surprising? It's not surprising. It's a sobering statistic, but it isn't surprising. How much do we know about the exact science of how something like meditation would help stress and by extension, uh, something like depression or anxiety? Because I, I know with the brain, there's a lot that we know about it, but there's a lot that we don't. And there's there's some practices that are just like, well, we're not sure why this works, but it does. So let's go with it. How much of that is known with meditation? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the challenge oftentimes in these studies is engagement. How do people keep connected to the practice or to the intervention? So that's often the biggest challenge. People drop out. And that's one of the challenges thinking as a clinician, how do you keep people engaged? Because that's where we know the benefit is. I think then you move to the next level of studies, which is sort of translational levels, where we think about the neuroscience. That, and when you look at the neuroscientists, you know, every neuroscientist has their part of the brain they like to look at. You know, whether it's the amygdala, the anterior cingulate, the prefrontal cortex, you know, there are all these different parts of the brain that are like the amygdala is a part of the brain that is the most sort of, we would call a primitive part of the brain because many other species have an amygdala. It is what we term the fight or flight response. It's the emotional sort of center and, and sort of the fear response and all and anger and, you know, all that lives in the amygdala. But it's tied very closely with other parts of the brain. So the prefrontal cortex, as an example, is the part of the brain that makes us distinctly human. That is where all of the executive function, we may feel rage or we may feel it, but we have the ability to suppress it or make a different decision if we and, and not let the amygdala sort of take control. And then we make decisions. We make decisions that, well, do we really want to go here or do we not? And then there's this connections that go from that part of the brain to the, prim you know, all these connections. So that's where it's things like the anterior cingulate is an example of where there's the connection. So again, I bring up all these terminology, not to, it's complex, you know, <laughs> and, and, and again, every neuroscientist has their part of the brain they love looking at. 
And you will find a study, especially in meditation, like, oh, look at that part of the brain light up. Now, the second part is how do you measure change? And that gets down to technology. Originally, you know, we have very fancy now MRIs, but the question will show that this part of brain lights up or this part of brain is sort of active. The challenge is what does that mean actually to the human being's experience? Because this might be lighting up, but that may not have a correlation with their actual experience. Or we might be creating a correlation really where none exists. That's often the challenge. And then the next level of study is really at the level of the gene itself. So we have learned, especially through our work at the Benson Henry Institute, is that while your genes may be fixed in terms of like these are the genes that have been given, how they turn on and off is actually not. And it turns out that when people engage in mind-body practices, some genes are more expressed and some are less expressed. And there's a little bit of variability there. And that variability may actually have relevance. And that variability may actually have an important effect on clinical outcomes. Does that vary from person to person or just from... That can vary from person to person. But we know that some people, if they are responding in this way with the genes it also predicts or potentially is associated with, I shouldn't say predicts, but it may be associated with a particular clinical response. Is meditation similar to, to medication or protocols of therapy in that what might work for me doesn't work for you and it's, it's a trial and error kind of thing? Abs- absolutely. That, that's absolutely that's what it is. So someone would be well served if to not buy into the idea that if they go to a certain type of therapy, if they read up on it or download an app or whatever it is, and it doesn't work, that's not therapy doesn't work for me. That's this type of therapy doesn't work for me. Correct. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think there is, again, meditation, as I said from the outset, represents sort of, it's a heterogeneous term. It means different things for different people. And so I, I think what we can say at this point is that engaging in these practices, the term that was developed at our institute was the term relaxation response. That was the term that Dr. Benson, who was the founder of our institute, he, as a sort of young cardiologist, he was originally studying the practice of transcendental meditation. And he found that when they engaged in their practices, their blood pressures would decrease by amount that was almost equivalent to medication at the time. So it was a very provocative and impressive phenomenon that he uncovered. As a result of that, he coined this term. Now, he today will say that that was maybe not the right words because relaxation sort of connotes a, a particular image for a lot of people. But, but at the end of the day, that's the term he and it kind of stuck. But that physiology is, is shared across many practices. And, and that's what he, he wanted to say. There is something ubiquitous. Just as we have a stress response that is shared across human experience, there's a counter stress response or the relaxation response that also is shared across and that has to be cultivated. Now, how you go about cultivating, it turns out all human traditions have described ways to cultivate this over millennia. And so I think there's something that just by sheer observation or practice, they notice that if you do X, Y, Z behaviors, you can decrease the negative effect of the stress response. It's so reassuring that there is so much science involved in in these issues. There's so much, you know, actual data because I think with meditation, much more so than than other ways of addressing stress or depression or anxiety, 
it can get so mystical. It can get so, you know, there, there's terminology, there's certain items of clothing we associate with it and, and smells and, and interior design. If you take um, lay magazines like Time or Newsweek, if you just do a search on their publications around meditation in the past 20, 30 years, I actually, I do a few PowerPoint slides on this. All of the images that they have are oftentimes white women in particular clothing and particular postures that have a particular type of angelic, ethereal look to them. Uh-huh. Right? So yes. it, it, I can, I can imagine exactly the photos you're, you're describing. So, so that is one of the things that in our clinic practice, we actually have to help deconstruct because oftentimes the barrier is, to many people, especially if they're depressed, is that do I need to look like this in order to do this, right? And that's the that's the thing. That's why I feel I'm very I'm very proud of the work that we've done at our institute is to really make it that this is really meant to be an all inclusive activity and all comers. You know, this is about your health. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with how you look. It has nothing to do with your skin color. It has nothing to do with what words you know. There is a shared. We go back to the physiology. You know, you could exhibit a stress response when you get cut off in traffic, or you might exhibit a stress response when you're dealing with your parent who is going through cognitive decline. All these things we know affect our actual human experience and, and the way of our own sense of health and well-being. And so we have ways and tools of counteracting the negative effect. The one thing I do want to just really quickly say as an important caveat is that we also make it very clear that the stress response is not inherently bad. I think people think of like, oh, I'm stressed. That's a bad thing. The stress response physiologically is actually important for our survival. So if you're in front of a bear, you don't want to sit and meditate. It's not going to help you survive, right? So you, it's a very efficient use of our internal stores or internal resources. And we want to be able to activate it in the moment we need it. Challenge that is happening today is that we're activating it all the time. And that's not how it was intended to sort of, or again, and I'm speaking a little bit, I guess, teleologically, like this is how it should be used or intended by it. But I don't, but our bodies are not built in ways where there's a constant activation of it. And that's where we're seeing the health, negative health effects because it's being constantly activated. I mean, if you can convince the bear to meditate with you, <laughs> then you're all set. But it, it makes me think of, a lot of issues with with therapy where somebody might have a depression that is rooted in perhaps a troubled home growing up where it makes the most sense to shut down rather than get inundated with what's happening or or an anxiety where you got to be on your toes because something dangerous might happen where you live and the trick is letting go of that when that threat is passed it seems like that's what humans aren't especially good at I agree. I mean, I think not all depression is the same, right? We're learning that. And there are um, multiple phenotypes. We might have one word to describe it. But if we look at other cultures, uh, this is where we may learn some lessons from the wisdom tradition. They actually use different language for different types of experience. So we say depression. We're learning there's depression, for example, that is related to social isolation, that is a very different types of depression than somebody who has a depression that emanates from, say, the way their nutrition might be. And another one, it might be very much of their physical activity and movement or, or lack thereof. 
not to mention all the different genetic, there are all these active research on like uh, people with particular genetic predispositions have particular manifestations of symptoms. Some people are more sleep predominant issues. Some people have much more ruminating thoughts. We may not have found all the markers to help us discriminate between the different types. Hence why we still have a lot of trouble treating it pharmacologically. Yeah. Do you personally have a meditation practice? Is it, is it part of your life? It is. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I think it's, um, and, and I'm also just as human. So my practice also waxes and wanes with my own stress response, right? And I recognize it. Uh, and I think that allows me to actually help understand my patients much better with my own experience as well. What do you think it has given you that, that would be missing? Or how do you think it would be different if you never did any of it at all? Well, I certainly wouldn't have this job. <laughs> so, that's for sure. Uh, uh, I mean, that is a starter. My whole—I I would have never predicted my medical career to be. This is going to be the path. I, I don't think my my own parents still get what I do. Uh-huh. Uh, they, but I, I do have a salary, and I, I'm grateful for that. So, uh, but um, you know, I don't know. I, it's hard to forecast because meditation was always a part of my upbringing from a standpoint of meaning and purpose. Like it has, I think to, to your earlier point, there was a mystical element to it, a sort of a spiritual piece to it that was very important in our sort of, I would call in the family vocabulary. But I didn't really appreciate its health benefits till much later. I didn't even know about it, to be very frank. It really came from a patient saying that, you know, bringing one of these Time or Newsweek articles into my, re- when I was a resident and saying that, hey, doc, what do you think about this? Because they did not want to do med- uh, medication, which was the way I was trained. You know, that's how we are trained as physicians, is to think pharmacologically first. Yeah, yeah, to, to address the problem rather than the, the patient. Yeah, well, and, and that's the only tool. If the only tool you have is a hammer, then everything you see is a nail, right? So, so that was the only tool I had. I didn't really know other ways. And if you look at the word medication and meditation, they only differ by one letter. That's Dr. Darshan Mehta. He's medical director of the Benson Henry Institute for Mind-Body Medicine in Boston, and he's an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Special thanks to Dr. Ken Duckworth from the National Alliance on Mental Illness. I feel like I've been a bit more strident and a bit more prescriptive in this episode than I usually am. Might feel like I'm making an endorsement, like the very concept of meditation paid me off somehow. But not so. First of all, how would meditation pay me? With like a small pebble or something? No thanks, meditation. I got plenty of pebbles. But yeah, I am pretty firmly on the side of giving it a try because there aren't really downsides. I mean, you can pay for instruction, that'll cost money, but you can also learn meditation off YouTube or from a book that you get from the library for free. It has no religious or spiritual affiliation or agenda, unless you add one to it. There's no real physical risk to it. You won't be sidelined with a sprained soul or anything. And again, I'm in favor of trying it. If you give it a fair shot and it's not for you, quit. Just quit. Screw it. Try something else. And and that is what I'm really in favor of, the trying. Look, the world can be a rough business sometimes, especially for those of us with interesting minds that have maybe been through some interesting events. 
So try stuff. Try all kinds of stuff. Keep trying new stuff. Keep trying variations of stuff you've already tried. And stop occasionally. Have some ice cream or tea or fresh fruit. Then try again. Next time on Depression Mode, after a year and a half of pandemic and amid new variants, kids are back in school. And like the rest of us, they might be kind of messed up psychologically. We don't have a manual for parenting that I can just turn to the chapter on signs of anxiety during a pandemic. So I think it is important for parents to be aware if they see changes in their child. If they're telling you, I'm scared or worried or I don't see much hope in the future, don't blow it off. Where are the minds of our young folks and how can we help? If people support our show through a small donation, we will continue to exist. If not, we won't. If you donate, you make Depression Mode and thank you. If you haven't donated, it's easy. You can find a level that works for you at MaximumFun.org join. We need your help. Also, give our sponsors a shot. Use those discount codes they offer. You're getting good stuff cheaper, and you're helping our show. We love it when you recommend Depression Mode to friends. Also, something that matters a ton. Hit subscribe, give us five stars, write reviews, engage with it on your side. That helps more people find out about the show, which helps our mission of getting those conversations happening. I want you to know that the Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7 for free at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. The Crisis Text Line, also free, always available. Text the word HOME to 741-741. They will reply. Let us know who you want me to interview, what issues you want to hear more about, your thoughts on episodes that we've already done. Send us an electric mail. Our electric mail address is depressmode at maximumfun.org. If you're on Facebook, look up our mental health discussion group, Preshies. Great talk going on over there. New ideas for new shows germinating there in that group. We're on Twitter and Instagram at DepressPod. Our Depression Mode newsletter is available on Substack. I write it. Comes out twice a week. Search that up. I'm on Twitter, at John Moe, all one word. Hello, credits listeners. If you get sick of rainy days, check out the McMurdo Dry Valleys, where it hasn't rained in two million years. Of course, that is in Antarctica, so you might have some other problems other than rain. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now. Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings No one knows the reason Maybe there's no reason I just keep believing No one knows the answer Maybe there's no answer I just keep on dancing Hi, this is Beth from Brooklyn, and this world is better with you in it. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Bye now.
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.